Esther chapter 4, as we continue our series through the book of Esther. Long story short, in chapter 3, the king gave authority to Haman to issue a decree that in 11 months, all the Jews will be eradicated. As the decree went forth in Shushan, the capital city where the palace is, the Bible tells us the city was perplexed, and the king and Haman sit down and have a round of drinks. And we saw last time at the beginning of chapter 4 that Mordecai rents his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes and he cries with a loud and bitter cry. And as word is spreading throughout the Persian Empire, all the Jews are in great mourning. Many are in sackcloth and ashes. And we took note how there's no mention of prayer. It may be implied, but it's never mentioned. Just interesting because God's never mentioned. Spiritual things are not mentioned. It could be to show us how far they were from God while living in exile. And we talked about how we also can go through the appearance of religion, the show of religion, and yet our heart be far away from God. We considered how Mordecai could not enter the king's gate clothed the way he was. That was the king's law. Don't show up looking like that. The king didn't want to deal with drama. Amen. He didn't want anybody raining on his happiness. And so you could not come into the king's presence unless you were invited or you could die. And if you weren't dressed the way he wanted you to be, if you're acting a fool, you could die. And so he only comes to the king's gate But he can't go in. And we contrasted that with our Lord's kingdom. We're invited to come through the gates, come enter into His presence and to be with our Heavenly Father. God said, I will hear your cry. I will carry your burden. I'll clothe you in righteousness. I'll receive whosoever will. Isaiah 60 and verse 11, Therefore thy gates shall be open continually. They shall not be shut by day nor night, that men may bring unto thee the forces of the Gentiles. Hallelujah. Amen. So here's Mordecai. He's dressed in sackcloth and ashes, and he's crying out bitterly in the midst of the city. He comes to the king's gate, and now we pick this account back up in verse 4, if you'll look there. So Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it her, Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. Now we aren't told how how her maids and her chamberlains or her eunuchs that were assigned to watch over her knew of the connection to Mordecai, but clearly they did. Because they're the ones telling Esther about her uncle's behavior. I don't know if they know there's a relation. But they know that there's a connection. That somehow they they know each other. And as I pondered some of this, I was left with more questions than I have answers. If it was common knowledge that Esther and Mordecai were relatives, then Haman would have never issued the decree. Because he's issuing a decree against the king's wife. That's insanity. As we'll see later on. 
Maybe the maidens and the eunuchs knew there was a connection between Esther and Mordecai. Because in chapter 2, if you'll remember, it appears that perhaps she put in a good word with the king about Mordecai. He all of a sudden shows up with a position within the king's gate. And so maybe he got promoted because of that connection. If true, did Haman know this? The maids and chamberlains may have known of their connection because when you're stuck in a palace for the rest of your life, you tend to get to know the people that you're around. (laughs) Amen. Um, you don't get to leave, so those people become your friends. But Mordecai, I had charged Esther, don't reveal your ethnicity. And so I wouldn't think that that's been revealed yet, but we, ju- we just aren't told. However, if they knew they were related, then they are going to put it together that Esther is a Jew. Because it's known that Mordecai is a Jew. That's the whole reason that was given for him not bowing down to Haman. So everything's about to come out. Why, why mention all of that? Why was I even pondering all this? I, I think it's a window into Esther's character. She was evidently a likable person. She doesn't appear to be ugly to her maidens about her position of authority. She seems to be a pretty nice person here. And I think it's because they probably can all relate to each other, all being forced into their positions. No one's really asked for this life, but this is what they've been forced to do. Also, she's got this friendship and trust that we see is is building, and and we'll see this here tonight. But as this chapter unfolds, as we think about this, we see just how perplexing this must have been for the empire, not just the city, but for all that are involved that this decree is being issued. Haman is banking on the fact that there's enough anti-Semitism within the the empire, that everybody's just going to hate the Jews enough to go and kill them. But we see here that there's a lot of empathy for the Jews. There's a relationship with Esther, and, and, and there's a concern for Mordecai out at the gate. So this is just a lot of speculation, but, you know, it's amazing what can happen when we just choose to be nice to people. We're independent Baptists, so we're good at being mean. We're good at being ugly. We're good at knowing everything, Right? That's not what God wants us to do. God says, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And and so I I think this may be showing us some of that kind of behind the scenes here, but it's just a lot of speculation. We'll keep moving here in verse 4. Upon receiving word that Mordecai is near the king's gate, clothed in sackcloth and ashes, crying bitterly, we see that the queen was exceedingly grieved. In other words, when she learned that Mordecai was in pain, she's in pain. If he's grieved, she's grieved. She doesn't even know the situation yet. You know, you don't always need to know what's going on in someone's life to just be there for them, to just hurt with them, to share share in their pain and their grief. When we see a member of our church family grieving, we should grieve with them. Even if you can't relate with what that person is going through, you can still be partakers with them. I'll never forget when my dad lost one of his daughters, Kelly, in a car accident. And he... I I never, I never really knew her. And... 
I'd never lost anybody close. I didn't know what he was going through. But I can still hear my dad weeping that night. You know what I'm talking about? And, and I can still hear the pain. And, and my bedroom was connected to the living room where he was at. And, and I remember hearing that through the night. And, and I was weeping for him uh, there in my bedroom. And I didn't understand all he was going through, but I didn't really need to. And, and sometimes we see people hurting. We, we ought to just hurt for them. My dad was deeply hurting. I was deeply hurting. Not in the same way, of course, but you understand what I'm saying. I remember when Robin Dustman passed away and I went to the viewing for the, that time that the family gets to view the body and we were over there at Kirk's. And as I watched the family grieve the loss of, of you know, Jack's wife, their mother, I, man, I was moved to just, I was crying. And it, was, it just hurt to see that they're now without her. And Jack ended up coming over and consoling me. And here I am supposed to be consoling them. Amen. Some, some pastor. Amen. When Brother Long's dad passed away, I remember hearing the pain in his voice. And it caused me to be in pain for him. I never even met his dad. But I knew Ken was hurting and, and I was hurting. And, and I just wanted to drive down to his funeral and, and just be able to give him a hug and say, Brother, I love you. I could give you example after example. We, we could almost go row by row and I could talk about things that we've talked about and, and the pains that you've been through. And, and, and I want you to know as your pastor, I feel those heartaches. I, I feel your pains. And I wouldn't want to embarrass anybody, but, but our church ought to join together in other people's hurts. I feel it when your marriage goes through a difficulty, when your children rebel, when someone's battling cancer, when, when someone can't be here and they want to be, when someone is struggling financially and spiritually and maybe somebody backslides, when somebody loses a loved one. And on and on we could go with the examples. When others hurt, do you hurt? Or are you so self-centered you don't even give it a second thought? We should all feel this way about our brothers and sisters in Christ. We, we should grieve with them. We are the body of Christ. We're connected together. We are a family. Romans 12.5 says, So we being many are one body in Christ, and everyone members one of another. And, be, and because of that, we read in Romans 12.15, Rejoice with them that do rejoice. Weep with them that weep. 1 Corinthians 12, 25, and 26, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Hebrews 13, 3, remember them that are in bonds, as bound with them. And them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. Galatians 6.2, bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what it takes to do this? You have to get to know people. You have to be invested in other people's lives. You have to have care for others, not just yourself. And you don't always need to know the details. Well, tell me so I can pray better. Sometimes you just need to be able to be an ear for somebody. Have a heart for people. How can we say that we love Christ if we don't love the brethren? 
and you don't always have to say something. You know, Job's friends did pretty good for seven days. But then they just had to get their two cents in for about 30-something chapters. I know Job was talking in there too, but it sounds better. All right. You know, just put an arm around somebody. Let them know that you love them, that you're praying for them. Sit down in the ashes with them. I'm so thankful for all the cards and letters and texts that I get at just the right time. I don't share a lot of things, but people just seem, the Holy Spirit just seems to put it on people's hearts. And without any details, people are just kind to say, I'm praying for you. So Esther is exceedingly grieved because Mordecai is exceedingly grieved. But she can't reach him. She can't leave and go to him. She is stuck in the palace. And he can't come through the gate dressed the way he is, acting the way he is. So we see here in verse 4, she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him. I believe this move was an effort by Esther to get him to change in order that he could enter in and we can talk about what's going on. I think that's probably the intent of her sending out these clothes. I don't think that she's necessarily embarrassed by him, but that they cannot communicate face to face unless he puts on some new clothes. We see at the end of verse 4, he received it not. He refuses to be comforted. He refuses to appear like everything is fine with this genocidal decree that's hanging over all the Jews' heads. He's not going to act like everything's good. And isn't it strange how disconnected everybody is within the palace? Haman and Ahasuerus know they're having a drink, and yet Esther, his wife, she doesn't know. People don't know what's happening out there. There's just interesting, and it's no fault of her own. She doesn't know what's taking place outside. She doesn't even know about this decree. So in verse 5, she seeks for answers. Then called Esther for Hatok, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. The communication with the women was impossible almost. You couldn't enter in. It was, it was tightly guarded. And they couldn't go out. You couldn't go in. And I see two applications here we can make with Esther and Hatok and, and, and Mordecai, Jesus is the only mediator between God and mankind. That's right. But we could also turn this around and we can see how religion puts up a wall of separation between God and mankind. And it elevates man to a higher position than God authorizes. In religion, you have to go to a priest in order to get right with God, to have access to God. In religion, you have to go through a particular church in order to have access to God. They are taking to themselves what rightfully belongs to God. Matthew 23, 13. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for ye neither go in yourselves neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Luke eleven fifty two, 52, 
Woe unto you, lawyers, for ye have taken away the key of knowledge. Ye entered not in yourselves, and them that were entering in ye hindered. But that's not so with our God. Amen? In Jesus, we have a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Whoop. We can confide in Him directly. We can confide in Him openly and, and about everything. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, encumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In His arms, He'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. He is a faithful high priest over the house of God. He is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He knows how to help in our time of need. He welcomes us into His presence when we bow in faith and with our sins confessed. He broke down the middle wall of partition. He's given access to all through Christ. Well, Esther sends Hatok out. What in the world is going on, Mordecai? And while we don't need details to feel someone's hurt, we do need details if they expect help. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> I can't help what I don't know. I think most of us have somebody we're close enough to that we feel like we can confide in them. We feel safe in doing that. Esther feels close enough to Hatok to confide in him, to trust in him, to find out what's going on, which he does in verse, in verse 6. And then we read this in verse 7. Mordecai, I told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay to the king's treasuries for the Jews to destroy them. And now in verse 8, he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare it unto her and to charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and to make requests before him for her people. Now there's nothing wrong with seeking earthly help. God has ordained certain authorities in this world for that purpose. However, to do so without consulting with God and supplicating with God is a problem. Amen. We should keep God in the process. Amen. Amen. But again, we see God is not mentioned outright anywhere in this process. In verse 9, Hatok, he relays the message to Esther. And in verse 10, Esther sends a message to carry back out to Mordecai, which we get in verse 11. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called, there is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter, that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And again, we see this contrast between this pagan king 
and our King of kings. We are told that we can come boldly before our Father's throne and find help in our time of need. We not only have access into the holy place, but we have access into the holy of holies. Amen. The veil has been torn in twain. He abolished the law of commandments contained in ordinances that we might be reconciled to God. Ephesians 2, 18 and 19. For through Him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Romans 8, 15 through 17. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. As the bride of Christ, we are members of His body. We are of His flesh and of His bones. We have access, but Esther doesn't have any of this. There is a middle wall of petition. There is a veil that is separating them. She can't just come boldly before her king, who is her husband. She is not one with her husband. She is closed off because of the law of commandments that are contained in their ordinances. She cannot draw nigh without the king's permission. The law tells her that if she comes before the king unbidden, he can kill her. And don't think this man wouldn't do it. We've already seen him banish Vashti. All it takes is for him to be in a foul mood. And how sad is it? She hasn't been in his presence for 30 days. A month. No communication. No relations for 30 days. This is not a healthy marriage. But there are homes like this. The wife can't access her husband because he's distracted, he's disconnected, or vice versa. They haven't had meaningful communications or relation in some cases for years. And to be honest with you, in almost every single marriage difficulty, I can trace it back to the bedroom. 1 Corinthians 7.5 says, Defraud ye not one the other, except it be with consent for a time. That ye may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. I know every couple has their flame that burns their own way. There's no set frequency, okay? But when able, there ought to be a coming together. It is one of the highest expressions of love within a marriage. It is the follow-through. When that is lacking, there's a problem in your marriage. And sometimes a spouse just needs to make a move towards the other spouse. Rekindle what's been missing. Spoiler alert, in the next chapter she does that. She makes a move towards the king and he welcomes her. Sometimes that's all that's needed. Sometimes the other just needs to know they're still desired. Amen. The king here has his concubines. 
That's a problem. But many have their cyber concubines. Well, we could do a marriage seminar right here. So let's do that. No, I'm just kidding. So she hasn't been called to go before the king in 30 days. Remember when the king was going through the process of selecting a replacement for Vashti, we were told of that process in chapter 2 and verse 14. In the evening she went, speaking of, of those virgins that would go in, in the evening she went, on the morrow she returned into the second house of the women to the custody of Sheashgaz, the king's chamberlain, which kept the concubines. She came in unto the king no more, except the king delighted in her, and that she were called by name. That went for the king's wife. <laughs> I didn't call you. <laughs> it's been 30 days. She's beginning to sense, I've lost favor with the king. He doesn't like me. The luster's worn off. It's been four years and ten months. She believes if she goes before his throne, it's not going to go well. Matthew Henry wrote, Her case was at present very discouraging. Providence so ordered it that just at this juncture she was under a cloud, and the king's affection cooled towards her, for she had been kept from his presence thirty days, that her faith and courage might be more tried, and that God's goodness in the favor she now found with the king notwithstanding, might shine the brighter, end quote. So aren't you glad that we don't have to worry about our king forsaking us? And listen, he said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. Deuteronomy 31.8 and the Lord, He it is that doth go before thee, He will be with thee. He will not fail thee, neither forsake thee. Fear not, neither be dismayed. Our King is always ready to hear our concerns. We are the apple of His eye. We can hide under the shadow of His wings. His thoughts towards us are thoughts of peace, not of evil. Jeremiah 29, 12 and 13. Then shall ye call upon me, and ye shall go and pray unto me, and I will hearken unto you. Ye shall seek me and find me, when ye shall search for me with all your heart. What a privilege to be a child of God tonight. We can come into His presence with joy and thanksgiving and praise. We don't have to worry about whether or not He's going to be pleased with us appearing before Him. He will hold out the golden scepter, as it were. Let me read to you Psalm 100. It's entitled, A Psalm of Praise. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before His presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, He is God. It is He that hath made us, and not we ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter into His gates with thanksgiving. And enter into His courts with praise. Be thankful unto Him and bless His name. For the Lord is good. For His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endureth to all generations. That's our God. If you're God's child, 
you don't have to fear entering into His presence. He made the way through Christ and His blood. God wants you in His presence so much, He died for you. That's hard to wrap my head around. So come boldly before His throne. He is your helper. He is our Heavenly Father. It is His delight when we live in His presence. Trust Him. Trust His Word. Confess your sins. He will not forsake you. Brother De, or Pastor DeGarmo, sorry sir. He's doing a series in Sunday school about abiding in Christ. John 15.4 says, Abide in me and I in you. That's so good. Be here for Sunday school if you can. Let me read to you Romans 8.15 again. This is such a great verse. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. She's in fear. She's in bondage. Paul said, look, we haven't received that spirit. But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. We can go to our Heavenly Father. So what are you dealing with? Go to Him. Pray to Him. Ask for His help. Seek His face. If we confess our sins, He will abundantly pardon. And if we we give Him the petitions of our heart, He'll hear. We just need to have faith in Him. Let's pray.